Right, this is based on the third chapter of the Gospel of John in our study of the Gospels. The text was this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. But there are three, well, there are a number of considerations in connection with this section, which is very important. There, there have been three basic responses of the traditional Christian church down over the years, depending on the branch of the church um, in question. The first is to equate um, the second birth mentioned here with baptism. And... As we will see, there is some truth in this. Definitely, the, verse, the term water in the fifth verse tends to imply um, that it is connected with baptism. Uh, this has been the teaching generally of the Roman Catholic Church down through the years. The second is to ignore it and to not uh, pay any attention to it at all. And this has been the response of the mainline uh, more or less liberal Protestant churches since their foundation. And the third is to identify a certain kind of emotional conversion experience um, which is held to be uh, the new birth, which may or may not be accompanied by baptism, although it often is. And this is the response of the what are called the evangelical Protestant churches and this particular understanding dates from the 18th century. It was not um, believed by any Christian group before that, with the possible few individual exceptions. But it was in the 18th century that the, what we call the revival or the evangelical conversion type of experience uh, became a phenomenon that was widespread. And of course, it continues to this day. 
as we know. Now, all of these responses, uh, I think, according to the masters, are incomplete. There is, uh, they're not necessarily per se wrong. As we've seen, um, there is a connection with baptism. When we discussed the baptism of Jesus, we saw that uh, definitely the water baptism did take place, but that in the hands of, of John the Baptist, as he baptized Jesus, that the water part, the immersion in water, symbolized an inner spiritual thing that also happened. Otherwise, um, the, the account that we have in the Gospel is meaningless. We saw that Jesus saw and heard um, unusual phenomena, which were very carefully recounted in the Gospel of Matthew, and that this um, was a real thing that happened to him, and therefore that he experienced something substantial in addition to the um, immersion in water. And so here also the reference to water is qualified by and of the Spirit, which would seem to be the more important of the two uh, factors. Certainly we know that... uh, initiation in the time of Christ and before and after him too, judging by the uh, literature that we have from the Essenes, the Dead Sea Scrolls and so forth, and from what we know of the uh, various sects of the early church, was always invariably accompanied by outer water baptism. And that, uh, as we have seen in our study of the Anurag Saga and of other uh, works by other masters, this is not an unusual thing that an inner initiation may be accompanied by an outer ceremony or symbol, symbolic rite. Masters are quite free to do this anytime they want. Uh, we saw in Anurag Saga that Kabir had established a particular rite connected uh, with his initiation, which involves uh, various things, choka, coconut, etc. And the things that were done outwardly did symbolize inner reality. And uh, we know also that Guru Gobind Singh, the tenth guru of the six, initiated a kind of, of which is the word for which is translated as baptism, uh, when it is used into English, involving um, Amrit, some kind of outer Amrit, and a sword, and uh, so forth. I don't know the, the exact uh, nature of the ritual, but it is there. So there are other instances too. The masters have their reasons for doing this, which is not necessarily always clearly understood. But we should understand and know that it is only in very recent times that the masters have eliminated the outer rituals in connection with these things. And Master Kripal Singh mentions in his biography of Baba Jamal Singh that in fact the last vestiges of ritual have only been abolished um, really since 1948. So that this is not the norm down through the centuries has not been that the masters give the inner initiation devoid of any outer ritual. Uh, Usually it is accompanied by an outer ritual and that is the case here too. So that definitely the identification of baptism with the new birth which Jesus is speaking of, is certainly justified and is not altogether wrong. 
um, as we will see later, it almost certainly is not the entire thing. And it cannot be even by uh, the standards laid down here in this section because there is a confusion that has come into Christianity since these things actually happened uh, in which theological belief is substituted for the actual fact. What Jesus is speaking of here is real and he is speaking of uh, something that really happens to somebody that leads to something. And he he refers to it um, by using the wind as a symbol of the spirit and uh, laying special reference on the aspect of the wind that is heard. The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the spirit. In modern English that reads, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you can't not you can't tell from where it's coming or where it's going. And so it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. Here the word for spirit and the word for wind are the same. And uh, so it's almost like a pun. And the point is that you can hear the sound, but you can't know anything more about it until you develop into it. And uh, eventually uh, you will be able to. So it's quite a direct reference to the sound also, although it's somewhat obscured in the English translations. Another point that I think is important in connection with the evangelical interpretation of the second birth as uh, identifying it with an emotional conversion experience, an experience which I have been through and uh, which I have quite a bit of personal knowledge of. And that is that um, a birth is significant in terms of where it leads, not in terms of the thing itself. When we are born, um, the birth is not the thing that justifies uh, itself and then nothing happens after that. The point is that when anything, anyone, any person, animal or plant is born, uh, that's only the beginning. That's just a tiny little thing in comparison with what follows afterwards. People can't even remember their birth. Master Kripal Singh used to say that um, on his birthday celebrations that he was uh, he was told he was born on that day and it might be true, but he had no personal knowledge of it. And that's the way it is with all of us. We don't even remember um, the day that we are born. And if, if we take a, a seed that sprouts and the first sprouting of that acorn, which is, corresponds to its birth, um, is almost nothing in comparison with the the thing that it becomes, the oak tree. It's true that the that the oak tree is implied and is part of and couldn't happen without that first initial sprouting. But the sprouting itself, the fact of it at the time, is very, very small. Now the, the conversion experience um, of which which evangelicals identify with the second birth is a very big thing in comparison to what follows after. In fact, in my experience and in the experience of many, very little follows after. A 
tremendous kind of release occurs, which is very satisfying and very real, and I'm not knocking it. And I feel, I felt at the time, and I feel now, that uh, in my own life that God used that as a as a a way station or a step on the way that I was to go. But uh, in no sense, um, psychologically, it's all wrong. It does not lead anywhere. Uh, it is simply there. And in my experience, uh, the growth process does not usually happen. And in the case of initiation, uh, the whole point is that the seed is sown and sprouts, and it's it's there. It happens. It's a real thing. Uh, the spirit is contacted, but that's not the end of it. Growth occurs after that, and uh, if all is well, then the individual will grow steadily, naturally, regularly, and become eventually what he was born to be, and that is the oak tree as uh, the acorn was was sprouting. So those are considerations. Now, you can say, well, that's all very well, um, but what evidence do we have that there was anything more in Jesus' practice than um, just simply some kind of, of conversion experience that he was talking about, or just maybe even the water baptism. And there is, as a matter of fact, a lot of evidence, um, again, going to prove that uh, our understanding of these things is very much colored by the theological events that happened afterwards. In other words, when we read the Bible, we are accustomed to read and this is especially true if we are a member of a traditional-minded Christian organization, we are accustomed to read in the light of everything that has been thought of since then. We read that back into the Gospel in such a way as to prevent ourselves from really understanding um, in the context of Jesus' lifetime what he was meaning and what he was saying. And it has been discovered in recent years uh, in kind of a miraculous way, I would say, and by a very devoted and uh, authentic scholar, although not necessarily a devout man, uh, and who is in fact anti-mystical and anti-spiritual uh, and even anti-Christian, which um, makes his discovery that much more interesting because the... the uh, points that the gospel makes that he discovered are not his own beliefs at all, uh, or actually a little before that, and uh, the chances of a letter having survived um, down through the centuries was quite small, that is, that was not previously known. It was discovered in a book binding, by the way, in a monastery in Palestine, and uh, it had been, the letter had been stuffed in to uh, give the support to the to the cover of the book in the process of binding it. And it had worked worked partly out and the scholar was going over the books to see what they had and he noticed a section of it sticking out from the binding. He pulled it out and there it was. Of course it took him a while to understand what it was. 
Anyway, in this letter, Clement refers to a secret gospel of Mark. And he assumes that he takes for granted that such a gospel exists, although part of the letter is an argument um, where he is saying that it does not contain certain things that other people say it contains. And at the end of the letter, he quotes a long section from the gospel to show what it really says on these subjects. And uh, that is what the the only part of the gospel that we know of. But his point is that when Mark wrote his gospel, he did not write everything, did not include everything in it. He he wrote it in two, as we may say, volumes. One was for anybody to read, and the other was for initiates only. Or perhaps it's truer to say it was for people who had made the commitment to be initiated. And the first is not wholly comprehensible until the second is fitted into it. This becomes clear from the letter because uh, Clement explains exactly how certain sections of the gospel, the secret gospel, fit into the gospel of Mark that we have, where they fit in. So he says, he quotes, for example, after, quote, and they were in the road going up to Jerusalem, Unquote, and what follows until, quote, after three days he shall arise, unquote. This takes place in the tenth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. The secret gospel brings the following material word for word, quote, And they come into Bethany, and a certain woman whose brother had died was there. And coming, she prostrated herself before Jesus and says to him, Son of David, have mercy on me. But the disciples rebuked her. And Jesus, being angered, went off with her into the garden where the tomb was, and straightway a great cry was heard from the tomb. And going near, Jesus rolled away the stone from the door of the tomb. And straightway, going in where the youth was, he stretched forth his hand and raised him, seizing his hand. This is obviously a variant of the story of the raising of Lazarus, as the professor who wrote the book points out. And it is substantially the same story, with somewhat different details. But the youth, looking upon him, loved him and began to beseech him that he might be with him. And going out of the tomb, they came into the house of the youth, for he was rich. Also, this is in the same chapter as the saying about that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. The youth is rich and Jesus does accept him as a disciple. And putting that in just a few verses after that saying goes a long way to soften it. I think it's a very interesting point that as written uh, that was implied this would, that this would follow and thus soften that impact. And after six days Jesus told him what to do and in the evening the youth comes to him wearing a linen cloth over his naked body which was the baptismal costume. And he remained with him that night for Jesus taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God. And thence, arising, he returned to the other side of the Jordan. And then there are a few other, two other sections follow, which are brief sentences and don't make much sense without the context of the Gospel of Mark around them. Uh, That's the main section. Now it's very clear here, in a way that is not made clear in the in the exoteric Gospels that we have, um, that. When Jesus accepted disciples, then he he teaches them something specific. 
Okay, here is explained. He remained with him that night, for Jesus taught him the mystery of the kingdom of God. And thence arising, he returned. So we know that uh, it's clear that um, although the baptism, judging by the costume, the linen cloth, is a part of it, obviously baptism takes a few minutes. And so there's something that is taking a long time, a significant amount of time, referred to here as all night. And now that something consists of Jesus teaching him the mystery of the kingdom of God. This is a kind of... Uh, of uh, phrasing that is not found in the exoteric gospels as found in the canon and uh, the possibility now exists that is not there because references such as these were very strictly removed um, possibly partly by the early we may say esoteric Christians themselves since obviously they kept the gospel secret Clement certainly plans to keep it secret and does not teach it publicly, although he does not hesitate to quote from it to this person who already knows about it, is not part of his public teaching or his public writing. And uh, later on, uh, references were undoubtedly removed um, by the, we may say, the people who, who were not initiated. In other words, who did not understand um, or grasp the significance of these references because they themselves had not experienced them. Uh, Professor Smith, who by the way teaches at Columbia, uh, did a lot of research into, into the religious climate at the time of Jesus' life. And while well, it's not within my program to read long pages from his book, uh, he does point out certain points that we can summarize. For one thing, um, he talks of in, in the letters of Paul, uh, baptism in Paul is always identified with, with a literal uniting with Jesus, okay, whom Paul conceives as the Spirit. So we can assume from this, first of all, that the identification of the man Jesus with the master power, which, um, as we know, is, a, is one of the, perhaps we may say, a, a fundamental mistake uh, of the Christian church, is beginning this early. Anyway, still the thing is, this undoubtedly has its roots in the, in the practice that came during the lifetime of Jesus, at which time it would have been appropriate to have identified the living master with the spirit. Paul conceives union with the Messiah as possession by a spirit. Um, this is unquestionably based on the esoteric teaching, and much, I think, of subsequent theological confusion in Christianity has been reading the Pauline letters uh, without knowledge of the esoteric teaching, which, which Paul undoubtedly assumed, although he may not have understood fully. Uh, there is one basic notion, as Professor Smith says, in baptism the initiate is possessed by the Spirit of Jesus. And this was the, the point of it. It was a ritual for that, for a union with Jesus, and uh, was for that purpose. In addition to that, um,
he lays great stress on the existence during this time of the initiation for the purpose of ascending into heaven. And this is a very important thing from our point of view because, of course, this is the initiation into Satmat could be described in just the same way by scholars even writing today. Now, Smith is not a, a sympathetic believer in these things. Any more than he is not a Christian, he is most decidedly not a mystic. He considers that it's all nonsense. Uh, not He doesn't consider that what he's writing is nonsense. People generally don't. But he considers that um, that, it, that it doesn't really happen, that people only think it happens, including Jesus. He considers that all mystics, including Christ, have been misled and deluded. We may not have to agree with him on that in order to understand the validity of the point that he's making and of the research that he has done. It says, Baptism not only gave Jesus' followers his spirit, but also got them into the kingdom in a special way. The kingdom of God par excellence was the heavens, where God himself was, and his throne and paradise and the angels and souls of the blessed, where his will was done and his peace maintained. From ancient times there had circulated through the Near East and Greece stories of men who had ascended into the heavens and thereby secured secret knowledge and supernatural powers and had even become supernatural beings. Stories about such ascents had been common in the pious literature of Palestine for at least a century before Jesus' time. They seemed to have led to some sort of technique by which men could give both themselves and others the experience of such an ascent. Traces of this technique appear in Palestinian literature of the first centuries B.C., including that found at Qumran. Josephus probably refers to the Essenes' practice of it. There are a number of later Jewish handbooks for the journey called the Hekelot books. So there was available in Jesus' time a pietistic magical technique for entering the kingdom of God par excellence the heavens, and those who entered might expect to become supernaturally gifted. They could also take disciples with them and confer the same gifts on them. Both the Jewish and the pagan handbooks give directions for this. That Jesus did use this technique of ascent into the heavens is suggested by much indirect evidence. Such an ascent is the goal anticipated by much early Christian teaching. Jesus has ascended into the heavens. His followers hope to ascend, even somehow in this life. Jesus went as their leader and showed them the way. Some of them actually claim to have ascended, and based on this, there are other claims for authority. And he gives a number of scriptural references, which, when read in the light of this understanding, um, do indeed seem to say that. And I mentioned last Sunday also, that in the, in the verse from the third chapter of John, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. One of the significances of that verse is that the, the wording is such in the Greek that the ascent appears to have already taken place. In other words, Jesus is saying that he has now ascended to heaven uh, and that he has come down from there. It's a, a different reading than we get uh, reading it in English, especially in the light of the Christian doctrine of the Ascension, which supposedly took place only after uh, the death and resurrection. 
so, but the, the wording of the Greek definitely implies that, that it had already taken place. Other verses uh, in the New Testament are like that too. Um, anyway, uh, and another aspect of it, as he points out, is liberation from the law. And this, of course, is almost always understood in, in theological outer terms that the initiates uh, did not have to obey the law of Moses. This is the, the terms in which this particular idea is expressed in the New Testament. But in reality, the inner meaning of this is, the, is a reference to the freedom from the law of karma or the law of the negative power which binds everyone to the karmic wheel that uh, once we come under the protecting power or the saving grace of the real competent living master, we are no longer subject to the judgment of the negative power, which is the uh, outcome of the law. And that this is uh, pretty clearly the meaning of uh, the many references in the Pauline letters to freedom from the law, the ultimate meaning. Um, Well, there are a lot of references. It's a very interesting book, and uh, there is an, a, a, he has also published a complete version of the letter in Greek with word-by-word translation, and with all the evidence to the authenticity of the letter. But perhaps the more significant um, thing, even than the discovery of the letter itself, is the recognition that it did exist at these times. This is not a fantasy thing to say that um, what we call the esoteric or the inner, or the spiritual understanding of these ideas is something that we have invented and are reading into the Bible. This is really not true at all. The truth is the other way around. Um, These ideas were current, were there, were definitely implied, uh, and were assumed by the people uh, about whom the Gospels were written, and by whom they were written, and for whom they were written. It is only later... um, when numbers began to increase, Jesus himself was gone. Not all of his disciples, uh, so-called disciples, fully understood the significance of his teaching. And many of the controversies that we read about in the book of Acts um, took place, and the inner teaching was lost. I mentioned, I think, several weeks back, in the case of Swamiji Maharaj of Agra in India, who died in 18. 18- 78, um, that who also taught a very specific inner technique for going into the kingdom of God while alive, as we all know, uh, because we are, the, in this case, the very direct descendants of Swamiji Maharaj. He was five masters back, and the, and the descent is very clear, and the inner teaching has remained preserved through five generations of masters. Uh, but even so, a significant number of his disciples after his death, and especially after the second generation, uh, declared that this was not the real import of his teaching, that he came to be believed in, not to be um, followed in the sense of taking his initiation and going within for ourselves, that uh, he was the, the greatest savior of all time, that he inaugurated a whole new era in the history of man, 
that subsequent um, masters who did not say everything exactly the way he did were incorrect, that only his writings are true, and so forth and so on, uh, leading to a to what has become a new religion uh, in which you believe in Swamiji Maharaj and you were saved. And uh, the process is, is appears to be endemic in the human condition. There's something that makes us want to to uh, to do this over and over again, I guess. Uh, it's one way we have of responding to something that perhaps demands more of us than we are able to give. I close with, uh, from the Gospel of Mark, this is now the canonical biblical Mark. Uh, by the way, the Gospel of Mark is remarkable for two, three things. One is um, it's very vivid style. Uh, in many cases, the stories that Mark tells about Jesus that are echoed in the other Gospels seem much more alive in Mark's rendering. There are little details or this or that that make them very uh, clear and therefore makes it kind of a joy to read. Uh, however, the second thing is that it's very choppy and many, many things are left out. It's the shortest of the four Gospels and uh, in many times it just gives stories without giving the teachings that the other Gospels will give. Of course, the existence of the secret Gospel written by the same author and it seems to me, thinking the thing over, that he originally intended it as one book and that the secret parts were taken out afterwards by people who felt that it was not a good idea to give it all out at once. And then the third characteristic of Mark is, is interesting, the, the emphasis on secrecy. Um, so much so that scholars call it the messianic secret, that uh, Jesus is constantly not telling the whole thing to everyone in, in this gospel more than the others. It is also generally considered that Mark is the oldest of the four Gospels, but is written closest to the lifetime of Christ. So all of those things do tend to fit together, but it's in Mark that we find over and over again he tells them <coughs> he tells someone not to tell anyone what he has done, and when, and when uh, they address him as the Christ or the Messiah, he tells them not to tell anyone, and so forth. And of course we know that, again, it's only in very recent times that the inner ideas have been given out publicly. Part of the reason is because freedom of religion is a very new thing. It is not, uh, it was never an ideal, although the Roman Empire uh, was very tolerant in many matters. It was very intolerant uh, of things that, that uh, took the whole man. Its view of religion was there was something you did um, that was part of life. But when people got too interested in it, it was not pleased with that. They began to investigate. And uh, this was especially true of the Jewish religion, which was known as a troublemaking one because the people cared about it so much. And of course, we have been talking about things that existed within the confines of the Jewish religion of that day. Right in the fourth chapter of Mark, Jesus is giving the very famous parable of the sower. And uh, Master Kripal Singh used this as an initiation parable many times, and that, in fact, is what it is, as we will read it carefully. He says, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow. And it came to pass, as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, 
and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground, where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And other fell on good ground, and did yield fruit, that sprang up and increased, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said unto them, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of him the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. And the wording here in Greek is much more emphatic than that English translation implies. The wording really is, Unto you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. You have been given, in other words, the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. And it's interesting that in Matthew and Luke, we use the same parable, but written later and from a more exoteric perspective, that that wording is softened down even more. But the original wording definitely implies that the mystery of the kingdom of God is not something that they are being given in a continuing way, but something that definitely has been given to them once at one time and has not been to the people to whom he told the parable. In other words, these are initiates that he is talking to. That seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. That, of course, is a quote from the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament and is not as harsh as it sounds in English, uh, especially in the King James English, it's simply a statement of psychological fact, not of intent on the part of God. Um, but the people who are not receptive or who have put whatever in between themselves and the Master do see, and yet they don't see. And they, and they, uh, they see but don't perceive. They hear but don't understand. And there's nothing that can be done about it. Because if they could be, then they would be converted and their sins would be forgiven. So, and he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will ye know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And again, very emphatic. Now, the word here is understood. This is the same word as in the first chapter of John. Uh, the word is, of course, in logos in Greek. And it means the same thing as it means in the first chapter of John. But this is ignored by uh, most Christians and Bible readers since the beginning who assume that when the word is used other than in the first chapter of John that it means the Bible itself or talking about the Bible or the message or something like that. But if we read the parable closely we see this is not at all what it means or can mean that the sower is sowing the word. He is planting a seed, in other words, uh, very literally planting a seed and the seed that he is planting is the word of God in the sense of the first chapter of John, the creative principle that's in the universe. And this is what, as we know, this is what masters do, literally what they do when they initiate. And then what happens? And he describes the different things. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when, when they have heard, Satan cometh immediately and taketh away the word that was sown in their hearts. Now we know that literally Satan cannot take away the word. It's not his to take. But uh, certainly he can 
work things in such a way that it seems as though that has happened and for practical purposes in this lifetime it is what has happened. And definitely there are people who have taken the initiation and who immediately lose all interest in it afterwards. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness. And again, the word heard there used consistently. The inner meaning of that is of course as we know that, that one of the aspects of the word, the life principle, is that of the sound current, that it is something that you literally hear and have no root in themselves and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And we know, I have known many cases like this also, when it turns out to be harder than we thought it was going to be, um, well, who cares for the Master, as Master used to say. Where is that master? What is this? And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word, and receive it, and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundredfold. And, uh, that's, of course, following the parable through. That is the, the way it works when it works the way it's supposed to, just as uh, we continue to grow if we are working the way that we're supposed to. Some of the other things in this chapter also uh, are significant in this, in this uh, case. If we understand that the sowing of the word here is what is being referred to, he said, So is the kingdom of God as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and he should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he putteth in the sickle, because the harvest is come. And this describes, of course, the action of the word. And Master Kripal used to use this very same image when describing, for example, our when we are meditating, our actual attitude in meditation. He would say that if a person puts a seed in the ground and then every day digs it up to see how it's doing, you know, then how far will it get? And uh, so it is when we when we meditate. Um, we simply do not pay any attention to uh, you know, how we are doing. We simply follow the instructions and let the thing work of itself. We create the conditions whereof it can work. And when the fruit is brought forth, okay, at that point, um, then the master, you might say, harvests us. In other words, he takes us home. He brings us into his fold. Uh, not bodily. The body may continue to grow and to live, but um, the purpose for which we are born has been achieved, just as the purpose of the plant that is harvested, purpose for which the seed was sown, has been fulfilled. And then other parables. Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up and become greater than all herbs and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air 
may lodge under the shadow of it. And of course that's true. The mustard seed is a little tiny seed, but the mustard plant is very large, almost a tree. Uh, at least that's the case with the mustard that was grown in the Middle East at this time. Uh, and again, this particular, if the kingdom of God is not understood as an inner reality into which people are initiated, then this kind of parable just doesn't make any sense. Because if it is understood as a future thing that's going to come, or as a thing that uh, will come in the future but was partially present in the person of Jesus himself, which is perhaps the most orthodox, most traditionally orthodox interpretation of it, this kind of parable simply doesn't make any sense at all. Obviously, it refers to a thing that is done which then leads somewhere within the lifetime of the person doing it. And when Jesus, for example, says, I tell you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God, when that is understood, the kingdom of God is coming in the future after Jesus' so-called second coming, then that becomes a lie, or at least as far as we know, there's nobody still alive who is standing there at that time and who's going to remain alive until that happens. But if it refers to an inner reality that is going to be experienced by them at some time during their lifetime, then it becomes very, it makes a great deal of sense and it becomes, in fact, explainable and fully understandable. So this is the insight, I would say, on the initiation, um, which should be considered in context of the other things that we have said um, over the weekend. Uh, this coming Sunday we will continue, as I've said, further. <coughs>